Well, hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, there is anarchy in the UK. That's right. It's never mind the bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols. Micaiah, what do we need to know right up front about the only studio album the Sex Pistols ever released? Well, that point right there, I think it's important. This is the only album from one of the most important bands of all time. Maybe top 10 important, like most influential bands. And that's why we see it appear on so many of these lists. Um, The original Rolling Stone top 500 albums list had it at 41 41 high and it stayed there in 2012 and in the updated list the 2020 list it it moved down significantly but uh, to number 80 which is still top 100 all right that that's you know other albums in the top 100 fell much further right i mean so that it still has influence enemies 20 uh, list of 500 albums from 2013 had it 38 Right, it makes sense. They're English, right? Of course, it's going to be just a little bit higher. Um, and I think 39 is London Calling. And uh, for Pitchfork's, you know, albums of the 70s list, they have it at 51. So I mean, this this just is a beloved album. And I, so many people who are musicians and learn to play music, learn learn to play these songs as some of the first songs, you know, when they picked up their instruments and started playing together with people and listening to music together and swapping uh you know cds and and mixtapes and stuff you know this is very important i think to people who who love music as particularly punk rock music and alternative music uh hard to uh to underestimate you know its influence on on so many of us which for me this is not one of my favorite albums this is one of the ones the season we're going to be talking about that is not in my personal top 100 and it's not even in my top 10 favorite albums of 1977, the year that it came out. But it's just undeniable that this is one of the most influential, most important albums of all time. And on the strength of, you know, a, a few of these tracks, one of the best albums of all time and probably the best to demonstrate the British punk rock scene in the 1970s. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because... Yeah, so you and I both had this in our 50s. And so it's one of the 25 albums that we're doing for this season. And yet you and I are similar in this, that this is not a top 100 favorite album for me. This would be a top 10 of 1977 for me, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be number one. It's hard to separate out for me this album on its own from this album in the context of the mythology of the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, that's really for me, this album on its own is really, is a great album. And it's, it's sonically a better album than um, I think I expected when I first heard it. Um, it is a more polished album than I think we would have expected thinking of, you know, 1977 punk, punk London. I mean, that's, 
there, there are some surprises on this album because this album defies expectations in some ways. But this is also an album that comes with the mythology of the band, the Sex Pistols, and all of the things we think about the Sex Pistols. And regardless of what you think about this album or what you think about this band, there is no denying their influence. There is no denying that for certainly the generation to come, they defined all of the ways in which um, punk was. I mean, and, and what I mean by that is that punk, as we talked about with the clash, punk is more than a genre. Punk is in, is an ethos in what the sex pistols did is they combined all of it. They can, they combined the statement, the movement, the fashion, the, I mean, even the way the band came together, you think about Sid Vicious, who we so often think of as um, at least visually kind of the face of and look of this band, despite the fact that Sid Vicious is, is barely a figure in this band at all. He's essentially in the band for what amounts to less than a year. He plays bass on two songs on this album, does not sing on any of it. Um, he, you know, spends the, almost the entirety of the recording of this album in the hospital with hepatitis, like for, for someone who's such a non-factor in this album, we think of Sid Vicious when we think of the Sex Pistols. But again, that's part of the mythology around this band and so the context of this album makes it greater than it is standing on its own. And it's a pretty great album standing on its own. Micaiah, mm-hmm. I am 40 and you are 30. Correct. Both of us were born after the Sex Pistols were done. So Correct. how were you first exposed to the Sex Pistols? I actually found out about them because there there's a there's a hard rock you know a music venue and a hard rock cafe that's in Orlando but there was a, a smaller place on International Drive that wasn't part of City Walk called the Hard Rock Vault it's no longer there there are a few pictures of it online that you can find but the first room at the Punk Rock Vault was a punk rock room and they had like clothes and instruments from members of the sex pistols and things like talking heads and like Ramones and Blondie. They had all different kinds of artifacts and they're in that punk rock room. And I was just hearing these like wild things about the sex pistols. And I guess in that room also, they must've been playing like God save the queen or anarchy in the UK. And I thought that this was just wild and exciting. So after hearing about them and like seeing these pictures at the Hard Rock Vault in Orlando, uh, this was the, the time of AOL and AOL music. And so finding music videos uh, was more accessible than had ever been like in history uh, at this point. So you could actually just go to AOL music and type in sex pistols and see a music video 
of, of the Sex Pistols. And what I saw scared me. Uh, part of it delighted me. I mean, I was like, well, these songs are catchy and I, I, I like this music. But everything I was listening to at that point was top 40. You know, he said my, the Michael Jackson, this is 2003. All right. So I'm just, I'm still the world's biggest Michael Jackson fan at the time. All right. So this is huge for me. Okay. To be like, I'm into this, but Johnny Rotten, this guy scares me. The way the, these faces that he's making, the way that he's just putting his, his face right up into the, the camera you know, just like with his acne and bad teeth and crazy colored hair. And, you know, so it just, and, and being, you know, someone who was 13 about to have crazy hair and acne and stuff, you know, it's like this just it somehow was also very appealing to me. From, I guess, that, you know, I haven't really thought about it till right now, but I guess I, I, I heard of them first through a historical perspective, like from the Hard Rock Vault. And then saw the images and heard the music, and I was just like, this is bananas. So, yeah, it makes sense to me that even though it's not in my top 100 personal, that I would think of it still in historical terms as being totally uh, necessary to be on our list. My first exposure to this album in this band was the early 90s in the um that kind of real big that that first um pop punk revival um so if you think about uh the time surrounding green day's dookie which was the green day uh major label release um which I think became the entry point to a whole generation of folks like me into punk music. Um, and then through that very quickly, it was, well, no green, greeny is not punk. Cause as soon as you are exposed to punk music, you are also then exposed almost immediately to, um, to, to punk traffic cops, you know, the people who make it their personal mission that they get to decide what is and is not punk. And, uh, you know, there's a guy in my middle school who was real big into uh, so many uh, of, of the punk bands. And he was one of the guys who was like in the know and always knew the underground band. And he had the, the, the denim jacket that he had put every patch on for every possible band. And um, he had a Sex Pistols patch and a Buzzcocks patch and a Descendants patch and a Black Flag patch. And he was really the one who first kind of clued me into all this music. And so he would literally make me, uh, you know, he had the CDs and so he would make me uh, tape copies, uh, you know, so normally because punk albums were often very short, you know, and I'd get like the 120 or 180 minute tape, you know, he'd put a full album on one side of the tape and a full album on the other side. And so I got, uh, Fugazi album, 13 songs, the uh, Descendants, My Logo Goes to College, uh, the Sex Pistols, uh, uh, you know, never mind the bullet here, the Sex Pistols, and the first Ramones album. So I got all four of those from him on two on two tapes, essentially, and listened, listened to those like crazy. 
Um, and so that was really my first exposure. And I think because so much of that was being a 13 year old and you're hearing all that music for the first time and you're being exposed to it the first time and all of it feels like, you know, you're doing something wrong because all of it's music your parents are not going to approve of. And so I, I also had the kind of parents that like, if, if I was listening to something that had bad words in it or something that they didn't approve of, they would, they'd chuck it in the trash. So I didn't want to lose any of that. So I'd always listen to it on a Walkman or on the stereo with the headphones on. And so that was kind of my first exposure to the Sex Pistols. And then, of course, as soon as I then was aware of who this band was, then you start reading all the stories about them. Um, you start learning all the history about this band. And then, like you, seeing the movie Sid and Nancy. And and again, maybe that's part of the reason why I think I, I mythologize this band so much is for most of my understanding of who this band really was came from a, a fictionalized biopic. I mean, like, you know, tries to be pretty accurate to the real story, but is, is still, you know, it's, it is still historical fiction would be the best way of, of looking at it. And so, yeah, and they kind of have to take liberties because toward the end of Sid Vicious's life, there's a pretty major mystery there Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we haven't really talked about yet. You know, we don't know who killed Nancy definitively and Sid, died before he can go on trial so the movie has to take some leaps Mm -hmm. you know i think for me all of my relationship to the sex pistols is a relationship that is as much mythology as it is reality and and that's been interesting so this week i feel like there's so much i've learned just doing the research for this episode that is the first time i've been exposed to the the reality of this band as opposed to the the mythology of this band. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of work has to be done there, especially now. Because we're we're so far separated from when this band existed and they existed for such a short amount of time. And so and in the movie it might have I mean the the Criterion collection just like re-released it recently on Blu-ray. So the the movie is still very popular. So it probably is still the way people are understanding this new listeners or people who aren't as familiar. That's probably still like where their understanding of this band comes from. So hopefully in our conversation, we will kind of break down the differences between the, the the facts and the fictions and the mythologies and the tabloids and, and try to spend some time to talk about like, what's actually on this record and who's actually playing on this record. So Rob, tell us who was our guest today. So our guest today is actually my friend, Flip Padilla. Uh, Flip and I have been friends for um, about seven years now. And I first met Flip when he was the, uh, the manager of a music venue in Jacksonville uh, called the Murray Hill Theater. And so uh, I, I met Flip when he was uh, putting together concerts and working in concert promotion and working a little bit with artist management and artist consulting and uh, has as a real interesting approach in thought to how he thinks of music. And for him, when we were talking about uh, albums where he could potentially be a guest, 
uh, Sex Pistols was the one that he jumped at. And so we're so excited to have him on the podcast. And so in just a few moments, we're going to take a break and let you hear from this week's independent record store of the week, as well as this week's sponsor, Anchor. And then we will be back in a few minutes with my friend, Flip Padilla. Hey, this is Rob, and I want to tell you all about this week's independent record store of the week. Nashville, Tennessee's own Grimey's Records. Grimey's has been serving the best music to the folks of Nashville for more than 20 years, and they've recently relocated to the East Nashville area. They're located at 1060 East Trinity Lane in Nashville, Tennessee. You can reach them by phone at 615-226-3811, or you can visit their website, grimies.com, where they have an incredible inventory available to peruse and purchase online. They're open in-store from Tuesday through Saturday, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Sundays from noon to 5 p.m. There's not a better record store that we recommend in Nashville, Tennessee. Consider purchasing Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols at Grimey's today. So I've always um, been a huge fan of music. Even uh, my first concert was... uh, in the early '80s, I saw Rush, and uh, that was that was it. I was h- hooked on music, and then um, after high school, I enlisted in the Navy, and I I was an air crewman for 20 years. And um, towards a latter part of my um, uh, time in the Navy, I volunteered at a, a live music venue that also um, served as an outreach for youth. And um, after I retired, um, I did a short stint in a, a, a like a software uh, development and. Uh, was offered opportunity to um, to actually run that venue, um, and so I did that. Ran that venue for about uh, six and a half years. During your experience managing the venue, you also were responsible for booking shows and putting bands on bills, and that also meant giving a lot of bands their first start or maybe their first big break or opportunity to open for a, a national touring act. But that also meant that you were constantly hearing new bands constantly being exposed to new music and constantly being exposed to how how successful a band could be at a live show that that whether or not they were talented whether or not they're musically skilled you were able to see whether or not people figured out how to play live and so much of the punk ethos and so much of what we almost define as punk is so much of what we think of when we think of the Sex Pistols. And so what are some of the ways that you have personally witnessed, even a generation later, bands who, whether they realize it or not, what are some of the ways that you saw bands that were really in the mold or following in the footsteps of the Sex Pistols in ways that you could recognize? Well, I mean, to be quite honest, I've I've never been able to witness a band like the Sex Pistols. I mean, I think... uh, 
that mold was broken after the demise of that band in, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, but certainly they, they did have an impact. And, you know, so much about punk is not so much the style of music or is this, it's really kind of this uh, ethos or this kind of lifestyle that, that bands um, uh, take. It's this fearlessness, the anti-establishment, um, uh, it's angsty. Um, that's really what, what, what comes across. And, and uh, I think that, you know, uh, there's this misnomer that it, to make it in the, in the music industry, you have to be talented. Um, and that's not quite the case. I mean, you could be a talented musician, but have no stage presence or no uh, ability to, you know, energize a crowd. Um, and so these, these, are, these are things that you, you know, that, that we helped bands develop as they were coming up um, through, the, you know, uh, the, the pain they're dues on the music scene. Um, so it was neat to, to be part of that. So how did you first get connected? What was your first exposure to the Sex Pistols? What was your first exposure to this band? How did you hear about them? How did you discover them? What was your, what was your entry point to the Sex Pistols? So um, I was fortunate that I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and, and in San Antonio, um, our, our radio was, was I, I had some opportunities to listen to college radio, and there was a local station called KISS uh, that, um, that really was um, uh, beneficial in that. Uh, I can't explain to you how important the local record store, you know, um, I, I love the movie High Fidelity, and it really embodies a lot of what you get in, in that local record store. But I was turned on to so much music just by walking in and looking through, you know, the record bins and listening to what the, the, the clerks or the people who were in the store were selecting and playing. Um, so that definitely helped. But I, I honestly believe that it was like uh, Rolling Stone, reading stuff in magazines that really intrigued me about um, the Sex Pistols. So um, and in, in the era that I grew up, <clears throat> just saying Sex Pistols was a little shocking. And so if you're an angsty teenager, you know, I, I wanted to, to know a little bit more. And so I would, you know, read about them or try to get my hands on, on anything that I, that I can, before even hearing them, I was a fan. Um, and then when I actually, you know, put the cassette in, I was actually uh, surprised at what I heard because I was expecting to hear this, this, this chaotic mess um, and what really came through on that, that record was, was, um, uh, it was chaotic, but it was not a mess. Yeah, that's it. That's a good way of saying it. I, I think for us, when we see the pictures, especially of Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious, when we see the image of this band, what immediately comes to mind is chaos. It, it, we, what comes to mind is this idea of 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 something that's just barely hanging on you know to to of devolving into a riot and then you hear this album and it is i mean there is melody there there the the craft of song is here um and one of the things that i'm sure we're going to talk about it is a phenomenally produced and engineered record which we don't think of when we think of maybe the most influential punk album ever made. I think the kinks is, is probably a better touchstone. Um, not just like you really got me, which obviously is, is a pretty big precursor, but with albums like, like Arthur, um, I think there's a lot of 
a lot, a lot of stuff in that record that that gets reflected later uh, in the in the punk movement. I think Ray Davies is is way under appreciated uh, for for his influence on, on punk rock. So I would I would say yes, everything you said, but insert the Kinks instead of the Beatles. Yeah, I, and I, I agree. echo echo what he's saying that um, I think if if you really uh, go back to um, the origins of this band. I mean, they started out as a as a cover band. They were playing Kinks and the Who, you know, covers. Um, and the we all think of Sid Vicious as the bass player for uh, the Sex Pistols, but um, it was Glenn uh, Matlock that was the original bassist for the band, and he was heavily influenced by the Beatles and that Kinks sound. Um, so, and and he was a major contributor to a lot of the. You know, the stuff that you, um, I mean, he, he pretty much wrote pretty vacant. You know? Prepping for this, I actually watched a, a documentary that I'd, I'd seen um, a while back, and and uh, Steve Jones acknowledges that that um, getting rid of Glenn was probably the biggest um, mistake that they made. And had that Glenn stayed in, the Sex Pistols probably would have had a, a longer career than they did. I bet that's true. Well, let's let's talk about that. This is a phenomenal punk album. It is a punk album that sounds better than you think it's going to. So if you've never heard, if you know, if you know the images of what the Sex Pistols look like, if you have images in your mind of Sid Vicious, you know, with a razor blade cutting himself on stage at a concert, like if if what's coming to mind is the biopic Sid and Nancy, not the actual album then I want to encourage you, listener, to make sure that you listen to this album. If you need to pause the podcast right here and go listen to this album and then come back, we are all for that. Because what you're going to find is this album sounds tighter, better produced, better engineered. This doesn't sound like a bunch of young punks who are putting out the only album that they're going to release, the only studio album they're going to release as this uh, under this band name. And yet, one of the issues of this band is the mythology that, that creeps up around a band that lives such a short period of time. A band that is basically just here for a moment, releases this album, and then falls apart. The train comes off the tracks, and before we get to the end of 1979, um, Sid has either been directly or indirectly involved in Nancy's death. He has also taken uh, taken his own life or he has died of a heroin overdose before he turns 22 years old. 
Johnny Rotten, who who did not have the persona. He tried to really hard, but he did not have the persona that Sid Vicious had. And Johnny Rotten, much to much to his moniker, became kind of insufferable by the time that we get to the eighties. Steve Jones, who really becomes the most underrated member of this band, goes on to do other things. But it begs the question for me, when we think about this band, and I love, Flip, what you pointed out from that documentary, this idea of going, hey, getting rid of the original bassist was was maybe a bad idea. If we had stuck with it, we may have had a, a we may have had greater longevity, we may have released more albums is part of the reason that we value this album so much because there's only one and then the band is finished or would we still value this album the same way if this band had survived another 20 years and released 15 studio albums their mythology is is the epitome of pop rock i mean you couldn't you couldn't really script this is like shakespearean tragedy tragedy that this band is um, but you know, Rob, I think, you know, time always, you know, if it's good, it's good. And, you know, um, when I used to advise these young, you know, artists who come on the stage, you know, I always say, there's no magic formula. You have to work hard and you have to write good songs. And, uh, I think we all forget that as, as, as much of a clown show circus that, that, that thing was, you know, these guys rehearsed a lot. You know, they they had been together since '72. They actually cared about um, what what the what they did, and it, I think it shows. I think when you you know it, it was produced. You had two um, you know uh, seasoned uh, producers and Chris Thomas and Bill Price. You know that were involved with Roxy Music and Pink Floyd, and and you know they you know they they took what they had and layered it and. You know, it was unlike any other punk album that, that it was ever. And that's probably why it's revered, because, it, you know, um, it, it was so punk rock, but it was also polished as well. And I want to say another thing, too, uh, Rob, because you were saying that, or at least implying, whether you meant to or not, that the band really relied on, like, the persona of Sid Vicious. But they they were very popular. This, this album doesn't come out till October... 77 but like anarchy in the uk came out that that single was uh november 76 so they they had already long been written about a very popular in london had a very popular single at the time you know and this is before sid vicious joins the band so people are already very attracted to what they're doing you know they're already without even having an lp out one of the big and they this this LP doesn't even come out until like after the first Clash album comes out. I mean, most of night we when we think of 1977, we think of it as kind of like the year punk rock like really broke, right? Two Ramones albums, the first Clash album, Talking Heads, Television's Marquee Moon. Like we there's there's a lot happening, and this one comes out toward the end of October. You know, like it, if you're if you're just looking at like the record releases, it looks like it's about to miss that wave, but the reality is that they were because of television appearances and other kind of promotional stunts, you know, thanks to Malcolm McLaren, they were, yeah, they were already very popular and very much in the, the minds of the people and in the scene. So I wanted, I wanted to get that out there as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that their, their, their popularity was, was 
uh, mainly in, in the UK um, prior to the arrival of Sid Vicious. I think Sid Vicious is something that helped catapult them um, in the States, that whole image. Um, but I um, but I also understand that uh, that band was was already um, I believe they had two singles had charted prior to um, the release of the album and uh, right when they recorded the album I think that's when Sid Vicious was was brought to the band if I, if I remember correctly um, yeah both both God Save the Queen and Anarchy in the UK had charted the singles before the release of the album yeah Pretty Bacon came out uh, before then as well and since you brought it up flip uh sid vicious who we all think of as being just so essential to this band barely plays on this record that's right yeah he he's sid vicious was in the hospital with hepatitis during the recording of this album he essentially is the bass player on one track and has no vocals on the recording so when you listen to when you listen to Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, you are not hearing Sid Vicious. So in our minds, at least in the aftermath of, certainly in the aftermath of his death, and maybe even more so after the 1984 movie came out, he is far less important to this band. He is, he is far less a crucial member of this band. But something about his stage presence, something about his persona is when we think about this band visually, um, and I may be right. alone in this, but he's what comes to now, mind when you think about this band visually. You're, you're not, you know, I mean, I, I think that he is iconic. I mean, Sid Vicious is is uh, iconic. And I think if you were to, to ask, um, you know, most people, you know, uh, who are kind of fam- somewhat familiar, everyone can say Sid Vicious. But I, I think that you have to be a real fan to, to go deep and go Steve Jones, you know, I, I just think that uh, Sid Vicious is for as little as he contributed to the band uh, sonically or musically, I think that he kind of, you know, uh, is, is the mascot, if you will, for that band. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, a good way of putting it. But, and that's, that's a perfect metaphor. Like he is just a mascot. Cause I mean, he doesn't contribute anything except for looking the way that he does, you know, uh, has the punk rock hair, the, the leather jacket and the studs, and he has the, the necklace with the lock on it, which kids were still doing when I was in middle school. You know, people were still going after that kind of look. But yeah, I, th- I think it's the, I think the Alex Hawks movie, I think, plays a really big part in how we remember them. Because I was watching that movie, you know, around the same time I found out who the Sex Pistols even were. So yeah, I think, I think that's a, a huge contributing factor. But the reality is that Sid Vicious was really just there to to look the part because even at the shows he wasn't playing bass sometimes they just unplugged him he was just standing there with no. the guitar and going crazy unless i'm wrong about that but i don't think no so. no i actually i saw uh like i said i watched um, a, a documentary and uh, steve jones said that even when he was first brought on um they had someone backstage filling uh the bass role because he, he, he didn't know how to play um but uh, right. again, I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, and how I, I'm in my 50s and I, I still am trying to look like Sid Vicious. Right. But but how not punk rock is that, though? You know what I mean? Like for such a punk rock band and a guy who looks the part, he has to have somebody off stage playing all his stuff. I mean, that that's so antithetical mm-hmm. to punk rock. Like this is what or, we would call a poser. 
Yeah, it's it's inauthentic. He is, or it's or it's like the complete extreme. Like it's 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 either uh, the most pump rock thing ever, or it's not. Yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty much the the punk rock dichotomy. Yeah. Why is this album important to the history of music? What is it specifically about this album that makes it so important, whether it's to music in general, to a specific aspect of the way we talk about music promotion and celebration, or whether it's just the simple fact that this was an album that paved the way for a genre of music that has become so influential even today in the 21st century. The way you set that up makes it sound like it's like the first punk rock album or kind of the first to do what it's doing. And I don't think that's entirely true because, you know, if you look at like, like Horses by Patti Smith comes out in 1975 and that's pretty punk rock. Um, and there's some moments where Johnny Rodden is kind of doing uh, a Patti Smith thing. It's kind of like free word association thing at the end of songs. Um, that sounds like a lot of moments on horses. And you also have people, bands like uh, The Modern Lovers with Jonathan Richmond. And like the song Roadrunner is, is a very big, important song. And EMI, you play the end of Roadrunner and the end of, EMI, uh, the end of EMI, identical. You know what I mean? So they they are they are not like the people who are like discovering the sound. They are very much participating and riffing on things that are existing within the scene in America. That's what's so ironic about songs like the song New York, which is like a dig on the New York scene, yet Sid Vicious looks like Richard Hell. Mm-hmm. And that's why they get him. Right? He looks that part. They're riffing on Patti Smith. They're um all the punks and in England, um, when the Ramones finally were toured over there, you know, there's there's a big show. They played a couple of shows that like everyone in the punk scene in England like went to, and like that was totally important for like developing that scene. You know, so like the you know, especially Johnny Ryan will talk about how like they're not influenced by anybody else and they were doing their own thing. But that's you listen to the record that that's not that's not entirely true. Um, but. So, but th- but then that so there there's the question really then so if if it's not entirely unique and it's not the first punk rock album or only punk rock album in 1977, 
I don't I don't know the dates for Leave Home and Rocket to Russia, but both of those may have come out before. Never mind the bollocks. Um, so so then then why is this one special then? And for me, um, a big part of that is still first off the the band named Sex Pistols. Uh, Flip, when you when you were talking earlier about even just like the title or the band name like Sex Pistols, even that the ideal audience is like a thirteen or fourteen year old. Like I was Correct. twelve or thirteen, like when I first heard of them, and that was like a I. I didn't, I would never have had the courage to like ask my mom for a CD by the sex pistols. You know what I mean? Like that. It's like, wow, that's, you gotta be brave to, to want to, to just boldly ask for that. You know, the clash, that's one thing, sex pistols, never mind the bollocks, you know, like that's, that's other story, you know? So there, there, there is an audacity there that, that is kind of unparalleled among the scene. You know, uh, the New York punks, a lot of them were a lot of art school kids. And the Clash were art school kids, um, Mick Jones and, and Paul Simonon. And, uh, and and Joe Strummer had his, like, political fascinations and flirtations with things like socialism and, uh, and civil rights and human rights. And that's not in the Sex Pistols, right? No. Anarchy. Anarchism. I want to be an antichrist. You know, there there is an audacity to the Sex Pistols that that somehow we have said like, okay, this is was definitively punk rock, even though when compared to the rest of them, you know, are kind of outliers. Yeah, I think you're onto something there because if you if you think about the classic punk rock bands of that era. Um, you know, uh, they, they weren't, they weren't as audacious. Uh, I like the way you, you mentioned the, the audacity of this band. They weren't as audacious as the Sex Pistols. They were very much in your face. Um, they walked the walk, you know, um, uh, this, this band was, um, is as much of a spectacle spectacle as they were, uh, you know, a music, but like, again, I, I you know, they rehearsed all the time and, I think what makes this record um, uh, special is because of how audacious it was and how, um, I, you know, I go back to the production. It, it just is a, a, a good collection of songs that, and by the way, which they had, like a lot of bands in that era would go into the recording studio and then churn out, you know, a, you know, an album. These guys have been collecting, um, these songs for, you know, several years before they actually put it down. And perhaps that's another factor in that, that this is really the best songs that they had that they actually put on one record. Mm-hmm.
the one thing I do not get from the Sex Pistols, from what, we, from what we've seen from their television appearances, live shows, and this record, is apathy. Because anarchy is not, I don't care. It, it, anarchy, <laughs> anarchy is not, I don't care. Anarchy is, I care only about disruption. I care only about flipping the whole thing upside down. That's right. They were more interested in chaos than, than anything else. They were way more interested even in the lyrics they wrote. Like there, there are songs in, and man, there are songs they performed live that never made it on to, to this album mm-hmm. um, that do appear later on in some of the, the live recordings we have of the Sex Pistols. And if you think a song like Bodies is... Um, in, intended to tick people off you know we were talking about this earlier um is it Bel- belson was a gas like mm-hmm. they're, they're they're essentially like they are shock jocks in in many ways they 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 are they are intent on making you feel uncomfortable whatever your sensitive spot is whatever the thing you care about they're going to attack and maybe the reality is, is that the mythology of the Sex Pistols is something that no band could ever live up to because it has grown so far beyond what any band could ever be. They're a really tight band, especially those two. And when Glenn was in the band, um, there's a reason why Anarchy in the UK is maybe the, the quintessential Sex Pistols track. And Glenn's the one playing bass on that track. Yep. You know, that, that is the band at their tightest right there. And but also uh, Johnny Run, I think really, really believes in what he's singing, even if it's crazy. And but also I think he's there's a lot of tension because uh, we were talking earlier, Rob, that he contradicts himself, mm-hmm. himself constantly, a, a constantly, and that's fine. You know what I mean? And I, the I think punk rock has like little room for that potentially. You know, it is very much just like <laughs> the like whose side are you on? Are you punk or not? You know where where you stand. God save the queen. Uh, there there are contradictions. I think he just wanted to stir the pot and be a provocateur. And and but I don't think that's what Steve Jones and Paul Cook were doing. And I think that's where the band splits. Is that Steve Jones and Paul Cook had their idea. Glenn had his idea. Johnny Rotten had his idea. Sid Vicious was doing whatever the hell he was doing. You know what I mean? It's just like the, the, this was a group of people who could not be together. For a very long time, you know, and yeah, I, I don't think it's just because of Sid Vicious's death. They could have just called Glenn and be like, "Hey, man, welcome back," and had a better I think basis. They, I believe they had called it quits prior to um, Sid's death. I, I believe that mm-hmm. uh, 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 Johnny Lydon walked off the stage on the the San Francisco gig, which was uh, I want to say late '78. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and you know, but there again, I just. It, it, this record is so important because of, in spite of the train wreck they were uh, and what they portrayed, um, when you listen, when you drop the needle on this record, it is, um, you know, it, it encapsulates really a lot of rock and roll. I mean, I hear a lot of Chuck Berry in this record. Mm-hmm. I hear, um, you know, um, Glenn's melodies uh, that he kind of, you know, was in, inspired by the Kinks and the Who and the Beatles. I mean, there is something that is, um, and not the fact that you know they, they hired the the producers had a pot sensibility, um, and I think that this was the first time that that you know, um, you know the punk rock world was made aware that hey you can make 
music. It doesn't have to be a two, two and a half minute song that we just play, you know, uh, something really fast because their tempo, Sex Pistols tempo does not match the punk rock tempo. It is uh, a very standard tempo compared to what you would see from uh, other bands. I mean, and the beautiful thing about this record, Rob, too, is that it, it, it it's a gateway. It, it serves as, for me, I wasn't around, uh, I wasn't interested uh, as a, you know, you know, someone who was, you know, eight, 10 years old at that time when they were first on the scenes um, until I got to high school. That's when I uh, discovered. And that record to me was was things that that helped open the doors to bands like The Damned and The Buscocks and, you know, um, uh, you know, getting into The Clash and Ramones, all that really, you know, starts to, you know, you, you find out about The Jam and then, you know, it's 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 that record that really kind of just, you know, opens the door to to some end of possibilities, um, you know, for punk rock at, at that time. Let's talk a little bit about some favorite songs on this album. What are what are the songs on this album that stand out to you? What are the songs in this album where you go, man, that's that that's one of the best. In fact, should we go ahead and maybe just do a top five? Let's do it. I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. I mean, there's got to be like we we're probably going to have at least three in common, right? I mean, there are some that seems some, like a given. Some right. mega I mean, hits are- on here. Are we going to uh, omit the, the the two obvious ones, or should we no, just um... no no? Mikhail, why don't you go stick, first? Stick to your gut. Um, I mean, Holly's in the sun. I mean, like this this is a great opening track. This is yeah. I mean, this is about as good as it gets. Uh, God save the queen. Anarchy in the UK. Like, come on, what are we talking? You know what I mean? Like, end of discussion. You know, uh, and then for me, pretty vacant. You know. Uh, the the British equivalent of Blank Generation, and I really like EMI, and most of that's because I really like Roadrunner by the Modern Lovers. Uh, so EMI, it's a, it's a it's a good closer too. Roadrunner opens the Modern Lovers album. This one closes this one, and I think that's uh, it's fitting. So, well, I'm actually very close to to Micah. I mean, I I um um I do do think that it's uh, holidays that 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 kind of uh, marching you know thing, and then it breaks in with that uh, that open chord uh you, you can't beat that but i gotta tell you to me my favorite um track on on this on this record is um pretty vacant i when you know that uh that 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 twangy echoey you know opening and it, how it, it builds up and i mean i i i, I often often thought i wondered if the track order if that record would have started with pretty vacant would have, 
but that had messed a lot of things up. And um, so I'm a real big fan of the pretty bacon because I think, you know, you just can't, when you hear that, you, you know, what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Anarchy in the UK, God save the queen. I mean, I think those, those are uh, hold up still to this day. Um, uh, they haven't I aged like a day. It's amazing. No, they, no, and, and in fact, I think you know how many how many times have those songs have been covered and and released by other artists. Um, Everyone learns so. to play them. You know what I mean? When when you're first starting <laughs> to form a band, you know these these are the songs we're all learning. Is like these those like three songs. I uh, did. I EM, yeah, EMI. I mean, I just love the the attitude in EMI, and. Um, you know, I used to be a sub hunter in the Navy. I used to fly uh, as an air crewman chasing subs. So uh, I dig, I dig the, the 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 hidden meaning of submission in that uh, in that mm-hmm. song. So I, I feel like I'm changing mine right now because I don't want us all just to have the same ones. Um, but let me let me just make it. Let me be authentic. In in order of how they appear in the album, my five would be "Holidays in the Sun," uh, for all of the reasons we've already talked about. Um, God Save the Queen, seventeen, which I actually love as 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 a side B opener. Um, I I'm just a fan of that. Anarchy in the UK and Pretty Vacant. Um, and I'm with you. The the what I find really interesting in Pretty Vacant is, and and again, credit to Steve Jones. I, I think that for as, for as much as we think of the Sex Pistols, as, when we think about them as a band and we kind of get the image of the Sex Pistols in our head, we're generally either thinking about Sid Vicious or Johnny Rotten. But when you listen to this album, this is Steve Jones's album. This is, that's what you're hearing. You are hearing one of the 20 most influential guitar players of the 20th century. And that's what I love about this album is I love his, his guitar playing. And so kind of what you hear on him playing a telly in a, in a, in a bridge position on pretty vacant. And then you combine that with, you know, the, the power chord pop of God save the queen. Um, it just, it, it's, it's all for me, a, a Steve Jones record. That's a fair way to look at it. I mean, Cause he, he's all over it. I mean, he, he really brings it up because I mean, there's, there's one guitarist in this band, mm-hmm. right? but it, it sounds like there's an army of guitarists. And, and what's it? Well, because basically it's what it is because it's layered. And, and I, mm-hmm. I, I love the fact that, um, that uh, he doesn't get enough credit for, for writing, you know, putting those nuances on, you know, there, you can be listening to one of these songs and it sounds like one guy playing, but really, it's there's four, four guitar parts st- stacked on top of each other. Yeah, yeah. He's doing like the riff, the rhythm, some solos, and then some like little flourishes. Right. It, it sounds fantastic. And he's on bass too. So I mean, this I mean, this literally is Steve Jones' record. Right. Yeah. Right. It makes me wonder, though, knowing that that's what the album sounds like. I I wonder how different it must have been for Steve Jones, not, not for audiences, but for Steve Jones as a musician, what it must've been like for him to play this music live, because, because you end up kind of defaulting to playing the core, like you, you end up defaulting to essentially playing the rhythm guitar portions. And 
I I wonder that's again, that's one of the things I wonder about this band that like had this band stuck it out for another five years, like how bored would Steve Jones have become with the idea of touring any of this because he clearly was able to do things in the studio that he could never do live. I don't know that it was important to him. I mean, I, I think um, I, I've never been like a, an actual performer, but but I've I've witnessed enough that I I think sometimes um, if you have a good crowd, a uh, performer kind of just feeds off that, regardless of what he's playing. If you have two moments that define this band, you have the artifact that is the record, but then you also have the Queen Silver Jubilee show on the Thames, right? So, and according to them, they didn't even know it was the Queen Silver Jubilee uh, because they say, well, like, well, we're just not interested in royalty. So we don't, we're not keeping up with that. And uh, they said, like, yeah, when when people are writing so much about you in the papers, you don't want to read the papers. So when you're ignoring the papers, you don't know that there are big events coming up, like the Silver Jubilee. But I tr- I just don't think that Malcolm McLaren was that ignorant. Uh, I, I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, so it's the Silver Jubilee. And because what he was saying, too, is like, well, this song is the 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 record is banned from being sold in stores because the word bollocks is on the cover because they thought it was uh, an obscenity and they, they go to court over it and Richard Branson defends them because he's the head of Virgin. Um, so the record's not allowed to be sold. It's not allowed to be played on the radio, but it's like the second best-selling album in the country at that point. So, and he's like, well, and, and they're, they're, all their uh, gigs are being canceled. So they go uh, in the, I guess, international waters, I guess it was, it was the idea. It's like, okay, we'll, we'll just take it on the waters, go on a boat, play a show, play things like God Save the Queen, Anarchy in the UK, and play it going down the Thames during the Silver Jubilee. And there's footage of it um, on YouTube. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's out there to be found. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Uh and as soon as they get off the boat, they get arrested. And this this is a time when if you're going out there and you're saying, you know, that the queen is a part of a fascist regime, this is treason. And the punishment for treason is death. You know what I mean? So like this, this is actually, if you're saying like, I, I'm an antichrist and I want anarchy 
And there are hundreds of punks in the streets in England, all unemployed, all angry with the royalty, right? You, if you have a small army and you're making these declarations, you're perceived as a threat. And they were, you know, and, and that's part of the audacity. That's not what the clash is doing. The clash is not smitten with the with royalty either, but socialism is very far from anarchy, right? That's that's big government. You know, so th- these are very different attitudes. Uh, so the, the Silver Jubilee show, I think, to me, is one of the great punk rock statements of all time, uh, especially in, in British rock. You know, it, it is, it's so different than, like, The Clash playing rock against racism, which is another big moment in their career. Um, but this Silver Jubilee thing is, is so unique to, to music history uh, and so tied to the band that, you know, I, I can't help but, you know, I have to admit, like, the fact that show exists is another reason why I, I, I do project that on this album and those songs. And that is part of it for me. Just like loving Like a Rolling Stone and Maggie's Farm, you know, the fact that those are Dylan going electric and like the Royal Albert Hall concert and him going to to Newport and going electric like that's part of why I love those albums also you know I don't I don't think those things have to be separate and we just talked about Michael Jackson like yeah those music videos are also a part of why we love this album didn't think Michael Jackson was going to come up in the Sex Pistols episode but yeah I, I don't I don't they, they can be separate but I don't, I don't know that they have to and I don't know if they should especially when you have moments that are, are that big and that important and that frankly i think it's cool well i mean i think you're i mean uh, you're right on on those observations i mean this is uh by the time they actually put this record out i think this is like their third label um and the royals were were um yeah they were they were a little um uh they were i mean they were this is uh, remember ira is is they're in full swing you know uh in in this time frame so this, this is this is a, unlike the Clash. The Clash tend to be a little bit more of a, like a hippie pacifist approach, where you know the Sex Pistols were just really aggressive, in your face, you know. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I can, I, I, I definitely see the tension. Um, but let me ask you both this: uh, aside from the the whole um, Thing that was going outside this record, the the train wreck, the 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 tabloid style kind of life that this band is in, um, does it take away from the fact that sonically, when you drop that, were you two not ever made aware of this mythology? Does it does that not take away from the, the fact that it's still an exceptional rock and roll album? I honestly don't know that I could give an unbiased answer to that only because the only version the the only reason that as someone who was born in 1980 the only reason that I was ever exposed to the sex pistols at all is because of is is because of all of it it's because of all the peripheral things and in and I'm with Micaiah like I don't know that you have to separate that out. It's the thing I struggle with because I, I do wonder, all right, is there a way to understand this album on its own merits 
but there's no piece of art that is consumed in, in a vacuum. There's there's nothing that is made that is consumed in a vacuum. And so as much as I have a reluctance to say this is an all-time great album because of all of the the kind of peripheral reasons that I think of it that way, that's also part of the way in which this piece of art is consumed. And so I, I, I don't know that I can give an honest answer to that. I, I will tell you that if this band had not done all of those things and didn't have the characters in the band that it did and didn't have, you know, the, the train wreck story of, of Sid and Nancy and all of that, like if there weren't all of these other things that drew attention to the band so that someone born in 1980 would be exposed to them, then it would just be another great album, a, a, a sonically great sounding album that I would have had to look harder to find. So in, in many ways for me, that the album would still be great, but the album would be a great album that took me much a, a much deeper dive to get into. And kind of like you were talking about Flip, about the importance of the, you know, your, your local record store and, and what it means to have people who were, were kind of those gatekeepers of, of musical taste who could turn you on to things. I think about the first time a buddy of mine made a, uh, he made a copy, a cassette tape copy of the Descendants album, Milo Goes to College. And that was another one of those, that, that, that's, that's a great punk album for me. Um, in, in, in fairness, probably, probably a, a, a style of punk that, that also my, my pop sensibility brain is, is maybe even, um, enjoys more consistently on a personal level, but, but it's an album like that. Like if you didn't have a person to directly turn you on to this album, were it not for all those other things, this would be a great album that would would be one that very few people knew about. And so you would, you'd have to have things like Rolling Stone lists and NME lists. Like you'd have to have some form of gatekeeper who turns you on to this album were it not for all of the other peripheral things, because there are people who will never, ever, ever listen to a single Sex Pistols song who you could show a picture of this band and they'll know that's the Sex Pistols. And that's not true for most punk bands, even today, even, even with all the influence we see um, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of bands that have sold uh, as many, if not more albums and have had far more successful careers in terms of the amount of money they've made um, who, who are not as immediately recognizable as the Sex Pistols. Personally, I don't know that this album cracks my top 10 favorite albums from 1977. Mm-hmm. But that's because there are two Bowie and two Ramones albums. So they take up like half of that list automatically. Um, but then you have like, you know, the first Clash album and television's Marky Moon. Also and, their Richard Hell solo album, Blank Generation. Yeah. You know, so there are. Yeah. So this, I mean, if, if I'm making a top. 1977 list this might be 11 or 12 i i i I don't think you would make the top 10. well i'm not asking if you think this is a a top 10 record i'm asking is does it does it stand 
on the merit of the music alone. Okay, so yeah, so to yeah, so getting getting to that, there's still a reason why we're talking about this album as being the one to represent the British punk rock scene. Because London Calling doesn't really, it's not like the punk rock scene album. No. In fact, I don't even need to, like, it doesn't even need the signifiers like, is this one of the best punk albums? Like, I think that's just like top five, one of the best, most perfect albums ever. Okay, so, but it's, if we're talking about the British punk rock scene, there's a reason why we're talking about this album and not Buzzcocks, Stranglers, x-ray specs the slits right and it's because this is the better record i mean and, and but there and there are great stories attached to like the slits you know like uh there's a great documentary on them too that's like i highly recommend to anyone you know the all-female punk rock band and, and they have a great album to their name but it, yeah, it, they, it, they toured with the clash they did, and they dated members from The Clash or, or different, you know, um, like Train in Vain is about what the members of The Slits. Yeah, so, but but we're not, you know, and, and if all of those stories, if, if, if Buzzcocks did the Silver Jubilee thing, maybe we would be talking about singles going steady instead. But those stories belong to the Sex Pistols and belong to that record. You know, so like, it, that, that, that's like where my attention is. Like, there's a reason why we're not talking about Buzzcrocks, Stranglers, X-Ray Specs, The Slits, and talking about that album. But at the same time, if those stories were attached to another band, we might be talking about them instead. You know what I mean? But that's I. But I don't think that's unique to the Sex Pistols or this album. I mean, that, I think that's just true for for pretty for maybe any act, though. You know what I mean? Well, you know, perhaps you know, it's it's. I'm looking at it through a different lens. I mean, I, I'm I'm in my fifties, and and um, that record. Um, Probably I have a, 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 a different emotional connection to uh, perhaps than you guys do. I was a little closer to the time that, that, um, that, uh, that occurred, but if you're, you know, you know, so for as much time as I spent listening to the, the Trinity of punk rock clash, sex pistols and uh, Ramones, I, I could go to the other Trinity of Depeche Mode, the cure and the Smiths, you know, um, uh, it was just, um, it was a different emotional connection. It was, it was, it was such a paradox, right? You know, um, it, it was supposed to be this like really aggressive in your face movement, but it, but sonically it just was just good rock and roll. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if I'm doing an accurate job of, of describing it, but, but I, I would definitely think for me, there, there's, there is a definitely an emotional uh, connection to, to that album probably because of where, when I stumbled across and where it was in my life. Well, to that point, let me ask this, and and, and we'll make this our, our final question about this album, and then we're going to talk some about favorite albums, and we want to hear from you, Flip, uh, some uh, some of some of your favorite albums that we need to be thinking about. Oh, I've got and, a couple bones to pick with you guys. I listened to a couple of your podcasts, and you definitely forgot one. Okay. Well, we're gonna we'll we'll, we'll get into that, but <laughs> but let me ask this: is a, is the last question about? Never mind the bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols. How does this album make you feel? Well, today I, I listened to it again today, and nostalgia, right? You know, like you hearken for the, 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 you know, going to those uh, those do-it-yourself shows in, in warehouses and 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 stuff back in growing up as a kid in San Antonio. Um, you know, 
I do feel nostalgic. I mean, um, the minute Pretty Vacant came through the speakers, I mean, I was just, but by that point, um, there's a handful of albums that I own in like multiple formats, like CD, you know, cassette. And, and uh, this is one of those records where, where I have multiple formats. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a, I prefer the analog sound. Uh, and I don't know if that's my age. I just, or I'm just going along with all the, the audio files, but, uh, but, but I, I prefer analog sound to digital. Same. What about you, Mikhail? How does this album make you feel? Uh, nostalgic too. Um, just for being 12 and 13, like, like listening, like discovering things like this is the moment I went from looking like, like Bart Simpson, just like jean shorts, red t-shirt and just like mop, like just like haircut, just like hair just fell out. I never thought about how my hair looked. I never thought about what I was wearing as like a, a 12 year old and a 13 year old until punk rock, you know, and, 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 and punk rock is fashion. I mean, the Malcolm McLaren who put the band together had like a story called sex, you know, the, the, these guys are put together because of the way they look, some of them, you know, and, and that is appealing and fashion is a punk rock state, you know, it can be a punk rock statement, you know, so like it, it, it reminded me of just it, Punk rock, it reminds me of the time just like looking at punk rock artists and just like knowing and realizing like there's a different way to be. There's a different way to behave. There's a different way to to sing or to play music or to, you know what I mean? It's just like there, there there's something else out there. There is an alternative, you know? So always kind of like remembering that can always be really fun. Because uh, like whenever I hear like those big three that we were talking about, like it is that kind of thing, which is like, wow, like, because it feels like it's always been a part of me. It's been with me for so long, for more than half my life, but every now and then it'll trigger something like, oh, wow, like this actually did open up like my eyes to like a different kind of worldview that was exciting and scary and fun, you know? So that that was a big part of it today. And that probably didn't come into like the fifth time I listened to it this week. You know what I mean? So it, it, it's it's a very rewarding experience to keep listening to it. Um, some of it's cringy, uh, yeah. So a lot, a lot of different reactions, and I. But it's an album that provokes a lot of different reactions. Yeah, I think that's it for me as well. Is I start thinking about when I first heard this album, and you know, of course, gr- growing up in in the family that I grew up in, um, you know, the idea of, you know, I, I don't think. Uh, I, I don't think I would have even been able to have the CD in my room. Was, my mom would have found it. And as soon as it said sex pistols on the front, she would have gotten rid of it. So someone had made me a tape copy of it. <laughs> and uh, I can remember I had, I had a, I had a big stereo in my, in my room with like two huge speakers because my parents had bought a new stereo. So I took the old one into my room. Um, but I was using the headphones, you know, so I, I think about laying in my bed, listening to this album you know, that, that feeling like, I, you know, like I was doing something wrong, like I was about to be caught at any moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so there is, there's, there's a nostalgia that comes with that, but it's, it's a nostalgia of, it's a nostalgia of rebellion, but a rebellion not rooted in anarchy, but a rebellion rooted in, in, in curiosity. And, yeah. and so there, there's, there's an innocence 
for me when I think about this album, which is not at all what you hear when you listen to this album. But but again, you know, to, to your point, Flip, that like we have emotional we have emotional reactions to these albums. And so even as we think about trying to appraise an album separate from its mythology or separate from the story of the band or the the tabloids about the band, we also have to think about the ways in which music is incredibly personal to us because none of us can separate out our appraisal of music from our from how it makes it fe- us feel. And and so it's interesting that, you know, those those are some of the ways in which you know we're all feeling that you know kind of nostalgia for you know that we we often think of nostalgia as such a sweet and almost such an innocent emotion and yet we're all having it for never mind the ball like tears of sex festivals like so i think i think i think that's a yeah, I, I you know the, the the beautiful thing that happens when punk gets older yeah it's not like missing picnics with your parents or you know, go into the park as a kid, you know, it's, it's something, you know, quite different thing to, to be nostalgic for. Yeah. Like the moment you realize, like, I might be one of the bad kids at school now. Yeah, <laughs> well, there, there is something kind of, uh, I don't know, that, that element of danger, you know, like, you know, Ooh, I have a sex pistols record. You know, you're, you're in the, you know, the halls of the, the school and like, Hey, Hey, check this out. You know, and yeah. you, after school, we're going to go to my, my, you know, my house, we're going to pop this in and, Right. Also, yeah. just to say things like, like, what are you listening to? Like, oh, the Sex Pistols. You know, mm. it's just like that. That's a that's a cool thing to say in middle school. You know, like what the what? Yeah. And as and as a white kid growing up in South Florida, that was something I could say a lot easier than NWA. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are you right. listening to? Straight out of Compton. Well, Flip, <laughs> you are a friend of the pod, um, and am. we want to give you this opportunity. To tell us <laughs> what are what are your favorite albums and what are the albums that we have missed so far? What are the albums that we have forgotten on our appropriately named podcast? Well, actually, my list and your list are very similar. I think that there is um, I th- one of the things that the that I knew that you guys had a great podcast is when I first was listening to you guys. I'm driving and. I'm actually talking back to you guys while you're, while you're speaking. Like, well, are you kidding me? How do you not, you know? And it's like, it's like I always, it's, it's a really cool thing that you got going on because I always felt like I just wanted to dive right in this conversation. Go, don't you guys are forgetting this one. It's um, the desired effect. Uh, and, that's, that's good to hear. And, uh, uh, but, but like, you know, so um, I, your list reminds me a lot of Rolling Stones, like top 500. And that to me is kind of a, 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 a tricky thing. I mean, th- there are some solid records um, on, on that on that list, but like, um, and again, it, it's just personal preference. I mean, uh, I think uh, I'm happy to know that you guys are big replacement fans as I am. Um, but I was I was just stopping, going, I cannot believe they're not talking about Tim enough on this record on, on this podcast. Um, and, and it bothers me sometimes that that record gets so overlooked uh, when everyone talks about the replacements. You know, it's always either "Let It Be" or "Please to Meet Me." And you know, there there are um, uh, some pretty. There's a good record sandwich in between them. And oh, by the way, there's also a pretty good record behind. You know, "Please to Meet Me," um, uh, but it's it's almost like a um, 
uh, you know, like trying to pick what your favorite child is. Uh, I think someone mentioned that on your on your podcast. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's stuff like that. And and I've had this conversation with Rob on on numerous occasions. And we talk about Radiohead. Everyone seems to go to OK Computer and Kid A. Um, but you know, and, and completely, you know, I, I believe I had this conversation with Rob. I'm like, well, I think I like the Benz better than those both of those records. And I, I said, why would that be on your and I think he had a, you know, um, you know, kind of uh, an intellectual response. But I think that that's that's my where I go. I, I tend to to uh, gravitate to the bends more so um, than the, those two records because um, it just is. Uh, I don't know. It just speaks to me more emotionally. Um, where I do I, those. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying anything bad about both those records. Phenomenal records. I just believe that. Um, you know, there needs to be a heart component to selecting your 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 favorite record. You know, like the what you know that not just what your your musician mind tells you or wow, well, this song is really crafted and and so forth, but just to listen to the record and go, damn, that was a really good freaking record. So so then for you, put some heart into it. Give us give us five records that that mean a lot to you and that our listeners need to go and listen to right now. Okay. So my, I mean, it's almost cliche. Uh, my, my all time favorite is, is Joshua tree. Um, that is just a, a masterpiece. You know, that, that is, if there was one record that I could, you know, listen to, you know, and I couldn't listen to any, that, that probably be the record. Um, and uh, and if you're not familiar with that record, you, you need to be. Uh, it's hard to imagine anyone who hasn't heard like the first three songs. I, yeah, I, I know. But and, and oddly enough, you know, it's it's, you know, like some of the best songs on there, you know, um, aren't aren't the ones that got the major airplay, um, in my opinion. Um, I love London Calling, but I, I, I tend to believe that their first uh, album is is a, a better representation of uh, of the clash I think um, uh, from a recording and I think by the time they got to um, like I, I hang, um, give them enough rope I think it's, it's a, another a great sophomore album for them um, and you could tell by the time that you know London calling they, they really knew what they were doing in the studio uh, they were you know they were experimenting I mean again you know um, what more punk rock could you be if to be a punk rock band to turn into a, a solid recording act, you know? Um, uh, but I, I do believe that their first record is really represents the band more so than, than um, the one that they put them on the map per se. I, I, Tim, um, if you haven't listened to Tim by their placements, you, you that needs to be in your, your heavy rotation. Um, uh, and I have to thank MTV for turning me on to uh, the replacements that no, you couldn't get the replacements on the radio. Uh, but I remember late night watching the video to um, uh, Bastards of Young, which basically was a still shot of uh, a, a floor speaker that had um, stuff piled on. And, and, you know, I just, I just thought that was so cool. And uh, I immediately went to the record store and I'm like, I, I have to have this album. Um, and I bought it on vinyl. Uh, God, four. Um, there's an album called Fully Completely by a band called The Tragically Hip out of uh, Canada. Uh, and it is a phenomenal uh, record. And I 
literally bought this record because it had an interesting cover. I'm like, I, I've got to hear what what this what this is. And uh I it's it to me it's probably a, a record that if you're not if you haven't heard you need to come uh, fully completely by the tragically hip. Awesome. Well, Flip, we want to thank you so much for doing this and being our guest. It has been a treat to have you on and it's always just good talking to you. Appreciate it. Love the podcast guys. I want to thank my friend Flip Padilla for being with us. And Micaiah, I love the direction that this conversation took. And it took a direction that we have yet to go in with a guest. And, and I think it's important, especially as we start talking about albums like this, where we are trying to figure out how do we appraise them and how do we contextualize them and, and what is the understanding we have around these albums which is to remind ourselves when we get too too far into the weeds of those conversations to kind of come back to the personal and remind ourselves wait hold on this is music this is this is art that is consumed and it is evocative and emotive and it makes us feel something and and so i i love I love that we had an opportunity to talk about that with Flip that just to get into here's all the accolades and here's all the things we can say about this album historically. But how does this album make you feel? There's something that I, I, I deeply appreciate about getting to do that today. Yeah, and it's just gay. Yeah, and it's also just something that we, we haven't really talked about ever. I think we've been trying to be really objective and you know try to, to make good arguments. Uh, but rarely do we talk about, you know, like really kind of get into like, you know, how it makes us feel and the, the subjectivity of it all. Yeah. I do want to still make a good argument though. And we have talked uh, on, on many instances uh, about Robert Criscow, who for years and years was the music editor of the village voice. And if you want to talk about, um, music in popular culture gatekeepers. Uh, Robert Criscow of the Village Voice was one of those during a, a massively important and influential period of time. And he wrote a review in 1977 of Nevermind the Bollocks. These are his words. Get this straight. No matter what the chic mongers want to believe, to call this band dangerous is more than a suave existentialist compliment. They mean no good. It won't do to pass off Rotten's hatred and disgust as role-playing. The gusto of the performance is too convincing, which is why this is such an impressive record. The forbidden ideas from which Rotten makes songs take an undeniable truth value, whether one is sympathetic or filled with loathing. These ideas must be dealt with and can be expected to affect the way fans think and behave. The chief limitation on their power is the music, which can get heavy occasionally but the only real question is how many American kids 
might feel the way that Rotten does. And where he and they will go next, I wonder, but I also worry. You read that like a Pauline epistle. (laughs) You can take the pastor out of the pulpit. (laughs) Like this, the cadence was just like, I was like, this is, was this is Thessalonians? What is this? Yeah. You, you read it as one reads the Holy scriptures. And that's how I read Robert Christgau's writing. The thing that I love about this review in 1977 is the recognition that for as much effort seems to be placed on the performative and into what Robert Christgau calls role-playing, ultimately his conclusion is that the performance is too convincing that however much of this is performative, there is something deeply true at the core of this album. And it's strange to me that his assessment is the real question being, will American kids feel the way rotten does? And it's interesting for the music editor of the village voice for someone who was right there. I mean, he had the front row seat to the CBGB scene and here he is saying, Hey, will will Americans feel the same way that Johnny rotten does. And if anything, he's the person who already had a front row seat to the fact that they did. And I, and I, and I get what he's saying though, too. I mean, I mean the title, never mind the bollocks is a very English title. And anarchy in the UK is very English, and you know what I mean. Like it, it, it God is save a very, the Queen, yeah, the, yeah, you know which it, God save the Queen is is a is a very English reference, you know. So it, it's not like the Clash, you know, uh, who are very English, um, but don't have as many of, of the of the references to the culture in their music. Um, so I guess that's where he's coming from also, but also like that worry, especially on a song like, like body, um, because it gets, uh, well, it's a very complicated song It's it's about a real woman with mental health issues who had multiple abortions and potentially back alley abortions and would carry the fetuses around with her. I mean, like I mean, by Johnny Rotten's accounts, you know, that's something that's like, well, this is actually kind of worrisome, you know, so they're, you know, and, uh, and the song New York is very critical of the New York scene, particularly the New York dolls in particular, it's the New York dolls diss track. You know, so there, there's some, there's some anger in there and some use of language in there. Uh, that 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 is um, that that can be pretty pretty dangerous, but it also just kind of reads like how critics talked about rap music, and how people still talk about rap music. You know, like oh, people are going to be hooked on drugs and violence because of this because they're singing about it. You know, so there, I think that 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 is part of it too, and it's also it's just. It's, I mean, it's just good music journalism too. I mean, it's just like yeah, that's just that's just a really well written piece that that sells copies of the village voice you know like did you read what he wrote you know so you know there's 
there, there are at least three things happening there. I think a genuine concern, just good writing that, that, that sells well. Um, and yeah, gen- genuine concern and, um, and awe of, of what's coming across on the record. Um, well, Micaiah, our question that we wrestle with every week. This is an album we both put on our list. Is this an album that we are going to be including in our first 25 of season one? I think we'd lose credibility if we made a top 100, like best albums of all time, and this one didn't make it on there. I, I don't know where it's going to place. It's hard for me to, to rank it because I, I do see it as so important, but I I put other punk rock albums ahead of it, though, at the same time. You know, I... I especially the CBGB scene, you know, like I, I, I put the Ramones and television Patty Smith over this and I, and I put the clash over this, you know, so where, where it's going to fall by the time we actually start to rank this top 100 further down the road. I don't know. Uh, but it, to me, it just, it, it absolutely has to be included. I, I think I agree with that. Listener. We want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we want to thank our guest again, Flip Padilla for being with us this week and we'll see you next week. decided to play our tribute to the Queen from the river. Between the hours of 6 and 8 p.m., the Sex Pistols played their songs beneath the bridges of London.